This is the AMA Los Angeles podcast. Are you ready? Welcome to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. I'm Joel Metzger. We are recording a live panel at the Santa Monica WeWork location, and the topic is video game marketing. The moderator is Chapter President Phil Rebentish, and he will introduce the panelists. So let's join the discussion already in progress. All right. So what I want to do is start with uh, Heidi. We do have two mics, so we will be sharing between the three of you. Um, But uh, Heidi, let's start with you. Short bio, and uh, then I'm going to ask you a question. Okay, um, I went into games about six years ago. I worked for four and a half years for a man named Jesse Shell, who wrote an important game design book called The Art of Game Design. Uh, made nine titles for him as a narrative designer and systems and features designer. And about two years ago, I left there to become creative director for an organization known as iThrive. And we uh, support the development of video games that help with pro-social outcomes such as empathy, optimism, and kindness. So that's my first question of the evening is, with your background, you should really check out her LinkedIn page. It's like it goes on for five pages. Um, But what led you, with your background, to iThrive and their uh, mission of teen thriving? Actually, I was very inspired by what they want to do. What they want to do is move towards prescribable games for mental health conditions. Um, There is science out there in neuroscience and social psychology that can inspire game design. And so what we aim to discover is what is that link and how do we take that science, turn it into something that game developers can use baked into the designs to create these social outcomes in teenagers. And, And I was just like, that's some next wave shit there, man. I need to be in on that. So, I mean, Jesse Shell is a genius. He's a visionary, and he taught me an awful lot about the industry and about game design, and I appreciate the, the start that he gave me. Um, but I'm, I'm really having a great time pursuing this and seeing where it leads, and we're, we're making new ground and new discoveries every day that I'm happy to talk to people about later. Excellent. Matt? Hello. All right, microphone's working, Ev. Uh, So I'm Matt Kautz. Uh, I uh, oversee business intelligence and audience insights for Machinima. Uh, For those of you, how many of you are familiar with Machinima, just by show of hands? Okay, so quite a few. It is video game marketing. Um, So for those of you who don't know, Machinima is a uh, talent network of over 10,000 individual creators working autonomously uh, on YouTube, Facebook, and across all the social video platforms. So my team's function at Machinima uh, has really three uh, main categories. Number one, we're working with all of our talent partners to help them optimize their channels and figure out which content is performing best for them, help them figure out the best times of day to post, best practices. Staying on top of the YouTube algorithm especially uh, is a full-time job for a couple members of my team. Um, And then two, we also work on uh, marketing optimization for uh, the broader Warner Brothers organization. Uh, We were acquired by Warner Brothers in November of last year and my team, because of uh, our background in social video, has an expertise in um, 
social uh, media audience analysis, and this has become really useful to the theatrical marketing, home entertainment, uh, interactive, and uh, consumer products divisions of Warner Brothers. Uh, and so we provide that service across the organization. And then uh, a third function of my team is to help brands and advertisers reach that hard to get uh, video game audience. Uh, because of our over 10 years of history uh, talking to gamers and working with gamers, uh, we have a really strong intuitive understanding of uh, what make ga makes gamers tick. And so when you have a brand that's never worked in the gaming space before or has a newfound interest in it, we're there to help and we can tell them what type of creative positioning might work best, which audiences are most appropriate for their brand. And by the way, Machinima was online before mm -hmm. YouTube, so let yeah. that sink in for a little bit too. Right? <laughs> Um, so my first question for mm -hmm. Matt is, um, you know, just diving into the numbers for a little bit and um, to explore how you guys are using social media insights mm -hmm. to optimize media targeting, branded content, and programming development. Sure. So um, we can take a, a practical use case to illustrate this. Um, if you think about a movie, let's just say, uh, I don't know, It, which just came out. So the first time that the movie is ever announced in, uh, in the world, in the press, there are thousands of people who immediately post in social about that announcement because they have such passion for the project. And so everybody who posts in social, we can see everything else that they've also posted in social. So we can go back and we can get an understanding of uh, what this audience demographic looks like, how it compares to other, say, horror movies in that specific case. Um, and uh, then also we get a sense of themes and topics per specific audience segment. Um, and from that social media conversation and that kind of engagement, then the marketing team can make optimization decisions about uh, what they're gonna do with their campaign. Yeah. Um, so that's how we're using social media analytics in that way. And then from a, a development standpoint, um, we'll create uh, custom audiences in social that are interesting to us from a development uh, perspective. So for example, we have two different YouTube channels, our Machinima channel, we have our Action Figures channel. Machinima is uh, gameplay content and gaming-oriented content. Action Figures is more about comic books, and so we have a, a gaming audience that we track every single day, and we have a comic book audience that we track every day where we have an analyst looking at everything that that audience is talking about, feeding that into the uh, social content team, and then they take those insights to figure out what they're gonna develop uh, for, the, for the day's programming. Excellent. Yeah. Mike. Mm -hmm. Yes, sorry, we're sharing the mic. <laughs> no worries. Uh, my name is Mike Demogging. I'm the head of marketing for a small startup called Servios. Um, so Servios, uh, what we do is we, we bring active VR to the masses. So one of our, our first game, Raw Data, I don't know if any of you guys have heard of it, but it was the number one game on Steam globally over VR and non-VR games. And um, we got kind of lucky. And, you know, I'm very happy about that. But where I started my career, uh, I used to work at uh, TBWA Shite Day. So we did a lot of the Apple, Nissan, and everything. And then kind of... I got kind of tired of you know sitting on the sidelines and wanted to bring something to the table. So I went on the brand side. So I've been in the gaming industry since um, 2003, uh, you know, at doing first person shooters. So I'm the exact opposite of Heidi. So my apologies. Yeah, we, we discovered this while we were talking earlier. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I, I, what, I, what we bring to the table is, you know, we hit that chord 
a hardcore demographic of you know both gaming and technology. But the big challenge that we have is, I mean, how many of you guys have played uh, active VR besides the mobile phone? Oh, there's a lot more people than I thought. So this is gonna be something on the Vive or the Oculus or even PlayStation VR, right? So where you are actually participating in the story. You are that weapon. So instead of using a joystick, again, if you're a big video game person, you move left to right so you can kind of dodge, right? But what if I told you that you have the ability to dodge a laser bullet by moving to the left or moving to the right or ducking? You have gone to that next level where as, they, as the movies come out, Ready Player One, taking it to that next level. So, you know, I like to say we play games and we go to ultimate realities, but that's probably more my real life. I make shapes on computers <laughs> and move, make PowerPoints. So my question for you is that VR is an emerging platform. Exactly. So what kind of challenges do you face on a daily basis marketing this new thing? That's a fantastic question. So when you talk about video games, the first thing they're going to talk to you about um, is install bases, right? How many people are actually touching? That's why talking, talk, talking with Machinima, that's a big deal, right? How many, how many people do you guys touch? Uh, about 150 million globally every month. That's true. That's in my notes. But it's 150 million, right? So the VR market, we're talking single-digit millions. So if you take that and then you go, I can only convert maybe 10%, is that enough to sustain a business? That's the bigger question. So as a marketing person, you have to help solve that business problem. Despite what corp dev and those business development, you actually go and help try to solve the problem. So again, it's all about how do we expand the base, how do we participate with that, and then at the, at the, end, at the end of the day, how do we create evangelists, right? So having that person going, hey, check out you know, this, uh, this, uh, this, this awesome game. Sure, I'll go to your house. You know, oh, this is amazing. But again, that's kind of what, and we'll talk a little bit, a little bit more, but that's the core philosophy of, to answer your question, we have to create advantages. We can't, it's not about creating awareness, so. Okay, great, and yes, we are gonna get a little bit deeper into that. So, um, my first general question for the panel is, we did a sports marketing event um, last year, and, and one of the things we pointed out that when you're, when you're marketing to sports players, you're dealing with a passion, right? They are not your typical consumers because they are passionate about their team. And, right, and with the gaming culture, I mean, I would think it would run even deeper than that. I mean. Typical sports fans might not be playing or watching one game for 24 hours without getting out of the chair. So it just seems like there's an even deeper level and an actual lifestyle um, within the gaming community. So when you're presenting messaging or marketing ideas to this community, what are some of the benefits and what are some of the challenges of the people that you're trying to reach? You know, I'll start here with uh, authenticity. When you have a fan base that is that passionate about the material that you're posting about, you have to be authentic because as soon as it screams of anything that's not uh, real to their experience, they're going to call you out for it. And that's actually a huge part of what we see with the community of gamers. Yeah. I will absolutely agree with that. Um, because all you have to do is have a new Star Trek movie released, right? And just go online and listen to people bicker about it. 
these geeks will be like tearing each other's throats out all day about what is canon and what is not canon. They feel this stuff so passionately that they take a certain ownership about it. And fan expectation is through the roof. So anything that's a franchise has to be handled extra carefully because of the fan expectations that go along with it. And so I would say that in cases where your product is being particularly true to canon and building on that canon, you might want to maximize that because, that, you know, the geeks really care about that a lot. So the, the big thing, I mean, I absolutely agree with you guys regarding the passion of the target market, right? We all talk about, hey, this nerd kid is in the basement of his parents, right, and everything. We, we talk about that. But here's the deal, though. Exactly what we were talking about, authenticity, the one thing that we have to promote is we have to bring to the table is passion. Think about it, right? You know, first of all, I create fun. Point blank, if you're not a fun person, out. I guarantee that. Second question is, you gotta be passionate about what you're talking about. So, has anybody interviewed at a video game company? No? Uh, <laughs> I laugh because I interviewed her. <laughs> so, the reason why I ask that, second or third question will always be, what's your favorite game? And you gotta come to the table with something. Like if you tell me, you know, oh, and I've had interviews, oh, it's Candy Crush. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> Let's move forward, right? I, it, I, I'm gonna disagree with you there. For, please the, do. The largest growing market for casual games is middle-aged women. And the latest uh, Entertainment Software Association data on demographics of people who play video games, the reason why it's showing that women make up 55% of the player base is because they're playing games like Candy Crush. So I don't know, is one type of somebody's fun any more or less valid than somebody else's type of fun? Not going to disagree with you, but I shoot robots. You know, awesome. that's, I'm just saying, that's, I'm just saying I shoot, but that's a different, I totally agree with you. When I was in mobile, totally makes sense to me, right? And that's what we did. Um, I worked on Penguins of Madagascar from DreamWorks. That makes sense, right? And totally, I totally agree with you. But in my slice of paradise, it's all about the hardcore. And if you can't bring, and, and to be fair to you, if you told me Candy Crush, I get it. I'm being facetious, but at the same time, if you're bringing the passion, like, oh my God, I love level 143 because they have seven. Whoa, there's a lot of passion in there. That it means a lot to the video game marketing. That makes sense? Matt, anything else? Well, you know, just to close it up by saying that, you know, at Machinima, we think about the content that we produce in one of three categories when we're talking to the community. It's either, um, it's either about uh, entertainment and fandom, so that's a transformation uh, aspect of, of gaming. There's the community aspect, so content that brings the community together. This would be our inside gaming content, where it's uh, the fans coming together to talk about the games and feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And then there's utility, and I think that a lot of the Candy Crush players that, that we see fall into that utility category, where they're coming to Machinima because they want to learn how to play the game that they're playing better. Um, and so there's something you know for every everybody, but you got to think about gamers not as a unified audience set. It's very segmented and bifurcated, right? So I want to talk about in-game advertising for just a second. Um, so 
Between you, is there a preference between dynamic, which is you know, product um, placement, static, where the, the uh, advertisement is actually part of the design from the beginning, and content uh, branded uh, video games like Adver Games? So how do you guys feel about it? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Is, is it neutral? Is it good for the industry? I can't say what works and what doesn't work because I don't actually market games, but as somebody who plays a lot of them, it kind of pisses me off. It kind of pisses me off. It breaks my momentum. It breaks my immersion. And one of the things that you really want to have when you're designing a good game, um, you want people to have that experience of escapism. You want them to be able to lose themselves in, in the world of the game. And you know sometimes these pop-ups between levels or whatever, it's like, oh, really, dude? Really? So let me ask you, do you think that um, impacts, we, we were talking about authenticity earlier, does that potentially impact that? I think it can, but again, I don't have the data. They do. Well, so I think it depends on the medium, to be honest with you. I think if you think about it, when you talk about mobile games, you know, I'm going to do, uh, what do you call, raise your hand, right? How many people have played mobile games, right? Uh, more or less the whole free-to-play model, you guys get it, right? Advertising, I, I understand, what you're, but it's a necessary evil. They go, I accept it so I can play a little bit longer. It's already become part of the behavior, right? So depending on the medium, now for virtual reality, I don't need you to break out of the sci-fi world that we've created. So it depends, right? One of the upcoming games that we are, um, and if you want spoiler alert, is, uh, is, uh, is, is a racing game. And in the racing game, if you think about it, wouldn't there be advertising? So it makes sense. Again, how do we add to that authenticity, but at the same time, at the end of the day, my son has to eat. So we gotta get paid, right? He's seven and I gotta tell him, sorry, we're not, we're not getting that Happy Meal tonight. <laughs> would that be an unhappy meal, Mike? It would be an unhappy meal. Uh, I want to uh, talk about esports for just a little bit. Um, uh, you know, it's it's grown from college and amateur clubs. Um, I remember Riot Games is one of our clients, and back in the day, writing rules for these college clubs that were springing up. And now, some of these players are getting agents, like talent, like actors, whatever. Um, and so, Staples Riot Games filled Staples Center. Activision is building a stadium. So how do you guys feel about the rise of, of, of video gaming as a spectator sport? I think this gentleman right here and his company has we already proven it. that it's yeah. a thing, right? <laughs> we absolutely love it. Um, yeah. I think it's only going to get more and more important because you had Riot go down to UC Irvine and build them the sickest esports arena I have ever seen. And they now have a college major at UC Irvine for esports, wow. where anybody who is playing Overwatch well enough, if you're a ranked Overwatch player, you can get a college scholarship to UC Irvine. Please, nobody tell my 13-year-old son, okay? <laughs> nobody tell him that. But, I mean, the, the colleges are embracing this as a thing. And uh, Blizzard announced last year at BlizzCon that ranked, you know, when you reach a certain rank of playing Overwatch, they will pay you a salary with benefits. I mean, this is, it's a thing, and it's here to stay, and it's going to get bigger. It's tremendous. Yeah, no, we couldn't be more excited about esports at Machinima. Um, and uh, we've invested heavily in it in a number of different ways. We have our inside esports programming. 
Uh, we'll have Chasing the Cup appearing on the CW in the month of October, so check that out. Um, and we also have a body count fighting channel that we maintain where we put on custom um, fighting game uh, esports events every single month with a group of creators. So what's exciting about esports is the growth. Now what's challenging about esports is that the business community really wants it to be a sport. And it wants it to have the economics of sports. But eSports audience is not the sports audience. And what you'll see happening on Turner and ESPN and these other sports-oriented uh, uh, stations is that they're programming it as if it is sports. They're listing stats, they're going over player bios, you know, the very dry kind of competitive-oriented content that you expect from sports. But when you think about the gaming audience and the authenticity that's so important to the gaming audience, what you can quickly realize is that that's not what they're going to want out of esports. What they want out of esports is entertainment. They want irreverence. They want uh, something that's that's much more uh, the Bachelor than Sports Center. And so I think drop that, the f bombs. What's that? <laughs> drop the f bombs. Drop all the f. -bombs. Exactly. Exactly. You got to say fuck a couple of times. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, so I think that that's really the direction that we're going in at Machinima, right, is bringing that voice of authenticity to eSports versus trying to make the business case for it like you see the rest of the industry doing. And I, I think in the long run, we're really going to win as a result. So for us, eSports is the natural evolution for games. And the reason we say that is because games are not, especially in virtual reality, it becomes a more human experience, it becomes a more social experience, right? So the problem is, and can I ask a favor from you, Phil? Can you go back to the original graphic? Nope, yep, almost there. Oh, yep, yep, keep going, the, the title. Oh, sure, yeah. There we go. So exactly, exactly what Matt was talking about, you see the guy with the headset, or the person with the headset? How do you tell a story? A lot of the story that we see, we see about esports is all about the intensity of the eyes, right? So how do we get VR into those esports? We know it's a natural evolution, right? We know that already. But how are we going to compete with the deep pockets of Riot? How are we going to compete with the deep pockets of Activision? So some of that, some of our playbook, I'm going to lay it on the table, is we have strong partnerships with people with, again, with Intel. They have ex Intel Extreme Masters. Have we started demoing there? You betcha. And we also have tournaments with, uh, lined up with Oculus, with um, some other partners. But again, that's that first step, because at the end of the day, Machinima only cares how to bring those audiences together, right? If, if League of Legends has billions of people, then we can talk, right? But if I go, hey, Buddy, remember that uh, panel we were on? You know, can I get a can I can I can I get a solid? And the problem is, is that no, until the until that audience is there. But part of the thing is, we'll, we'll absolutely do you a solid. Mike. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> Ready to step up. But I mean, you know, the answer to your question is mixed reality, right? Mm -hmm. So the future of virtual reality reaching the broader masses is mixed reality, and that's also something that we're uh, very invested in. So that's, exactly. for those of you who aren't familiar, this is essentially a green screen experience for the fan who's in the virtual reality uh, experience that allows it to be videotaped so that you're seeing what that person is experiencing within the game. So if you picture that in the context of, 
of a virtual reality esports, you could have somebody who's in a space station, you know, blasting, uh, you know, the other person from the other side of the room. I mean, it boggles the mind what you could do with virtual reality esports. Holy shit, dude, that's the holodeck. The holodeck. You just invented the holodeck. We actually, at E3, we have a game called Sprint Vector. We did the poor man's holodeck. So we rented out uh, 16 by nine, 16 feet by nine video screen. So if you guys YouTube uh, E3 Sprint Vector, you'll see the poor man's version of what uh, he's talking about, where we just had this big, huge TV screen and, and have people run it in front of it. Well, it's not really the poor man, huh? It's pretty expensive. <laughs> It's all, yeah, exactly. I'm sure it wasn't that inexpensive. So uh, this is what TechCrunch had to say about raw data. Raw data is the most addictive first-person shooter on VR, full stop. Hardcore Gamer said, it cannot be said enough. Raw data is the best action VR experience available. So you're, you're getting some noise out there, which is great. Uh, I noticed one of the things that you guys do, you have something called the development team direct line. So I know you're seeking design feedback from players, but you mentioned that you're looking for um, you know, people that were gonna promote you, influencers. So does this program serve two purposes? One, uh, to help design, but also to get some evangelists out there. Yes, so yeah, you, you have seen the uh, magic behind the curtain. So what we try to do is we try to get feedback, right, from the community. But we really, at the end of the day, we want to empower people in terms of talking to us. You know, we're regular dudes who enjoy video games. We read comic books. You know, we, we do a lot of the things that, that touches our community. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it that we do is um, we try to give them the tools to succeed, right? So what does the content creator need and, and influencers are a big deal, right? They're a big deal, but we have to give them the tools to, to do all that stuff. So one of the things, and Matt and I were talking about this, is that you know, we approached Machinima last summer to do something. And again, as he alluded to, it's all about mixed reality. Problem is we don't have that technology yet. So we can't tap into, again, he's gonna, he, you heard it here, he's gonna do me a solid, right? <laughs> Just so we're clear. But I got to give him the technology to make that happen. At the end of the day, he can say, Mike, I'm going to do you a great solid. I'm going to throw 150 million viewers towards you. But if I, don't, if I don't allow that to happen in terms of the technology, that's what I'm talking about. You know? And the other thing also in terms of we talk about evangelists, one thing my team, my entire team talks about is how do we go from relationship A to relationship C? So we really push those, le we really leverage the relationship. So we have a, a, a deal with Intel, but that started a year ago. Again, what are the tools that they need? We're great partners, we're going to do that. We're working with Steam and with Oculus and stuff like that, but again, we understand how can you, when they go, hey, I wanna put you in a bundle. Sure, what do you need? Can you amplify? Sure, can you give me a dev to talk? Yes, we will give you everything just to make sure that at the end of the day, you are an evangelist for Servios. So I want to follow up really quick. So do you have those kind of relationships with um, Steam, HTC, and Vive? Yes. That, that, mm -hmm. So they're not necessarily neutral, but they are there to help um, amplify your, what, your message? Mm -hmm. 
We actually, uh, they, if you look back on the beginning of raw data, we talked about eSports, they actually brought uh, Team Solomid into our office to do, to do content. And we've actually, we're in talks with Echo Fox, which is Rick Fox's uh, eSports group, to do that. But again, a lot of it is, you know, my team is likable. Me? Hmm, I don't know about that. But my team's likable, and, and they really push out that. And we have a strong relationship with a bunch of key influencers. So, for example, you saw BuzzFeed. They came to us, but it was because they met a person working for me at a party. We do a lot of that stuff, let me tell you. And you better show up at work at 9 o'clock, let me tell you. <laughs> All right, my next question is for Matt. So, um, as a, as a content creator, uh, my tagline is that you, I trust my instincts, but now I back it up with data. And I think if, for data to be truly useful, you have to be able to tell a story to people that might not understand how the data, but in order for them to understand what you're doing, to tell them a story about what this data is saying. Can you talk a little bit about your job and how you do that? And, and do you use storytelling techniques with the people that you're reporting to or working with? Absolutely. Yeah, storytelling, I, I think of myself as being really a data storyteller more than anything, right? And uh, the number one way to make sure that the data that you're delivering is actionable is to understand what decisions can actually be made on it. You know, the number one pothole that we fall into in the um, data analytics field is you'll get people coming to you saying, how many Facebook likes did XYZ get, right? And what you have to understand is, well, what's the what if the answer is a million? What if it's a thousand? What if it's a hundred, right? What decision is being made off of the information that you're requesting of me? And um, more often than not, we end up acting the role as therapist because somebody asks us for data and you say, why do you need that data? What are you trying to get to? And um, you know, honestly, seven times out of 10, you'll realize they already have the answer inside of them. They didn't need any data to get there. So um, it, it's about being clear on outcomes, right? If um, the answer is X, you're gonna make decision Y. If the answer is Y, you're gonna make decision Z. Um, so that's number one, is just having a great conversation uh, to, to kick the, it off. In terms of the data storytelling, though, it's, um, it's picking out the key data points that are really going to make the case that you want to make. Uh, you know, I like to t say to the team, uh, you know, most of your work is never going to be seen and is not going to be cared about. What really matters is that you're digging through all of the mess to get to the little nuggets of gold that will allow somebody to do their job better. And so how does the C-suite um, culture mm -hmm. at Machinima react to data science. I mean, I would think they'd be very open to it. I mean, you guys have been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I would assume, which is always dangerous, that they would be <laughs> open to what the data science is telling them. But can you talk a little bit about that culture? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Machinima as, a, as an organization is extremely data-driven, and that's right back to our roots, right? If you talk to any uh, YouTube creator uh, outside of Machinima, they're all data-driven as well. They're all looking every single day at their view counts, looking at their traffic sources. They understand exactly what time of day performs best for them. If you're going to succeed on a platform like uh, YouTube or Facebook, you have to be data-driven. And so Machinima's culture is very much in line with that. Now, where there's been a bit of a transformation is making the uh, development team. So these are the people who are taking our, um, our network content, so the social video content, and then upping the game on it and selling it into other platforms like Verizon Go 90 or Comcast Watchable or YouTube Red. Um, and that team, you know, development is, is 
very old-fashioned usually, right? It's all about your creative vision. Helping them understand the power of data and how it can help them make a better pitch to their stakeholders has been extremely rewarding, and uh, you know we've seen the results at Machinima. Yeah. And Mike, what about at Servios? Well, one, we, we are the audience, number one, right? In terms of the passionate gamer, but at the same time, we understand the power of, uh, of analytics. So for example, we kind of talked about earlier about how VR games should be social, right? Well, we looked at the data and only 17% actually play games with another person. So it's all about really the social, about the first person experience. So you take that and everything, even though that's part of our, our mantra, it still says, look at the data, we aren't doing something wrong, right? So we've got to figure out how to course correct. Great, my next question's for Heidi. So um, when I was doing my research on iThrive, I, I found it fascinating that empathy seems to be one of the core elements of what you guys are doing along with curiosity and kindness. And I would just like to spend a couple minutes in learning a little bit more about what your company is doing along with those key emotions and why, why those emotions? Okay, um, there is a movement within education right now about social emotional learning, about bringing 21st century soft skills to children who are, who are gonna need those, right? Technology is super important, but you also need to kind of not be a dick, right? <laughs> and, and we're seeing that the kids coming up are, are kind of having more and more of a problem with that. And so the social emotional learning kind of teaches them things like self-regulation and how to be kind to people and how to listen to other points of view and, and kind of resolve conflicts as they arise. Those are skills, right? They're important ones. And so there's the movement within social emotional learning and education. Um, my boss, who's the executive director of iThrive, uh, led the social emotional learning lab at Yale University. And she came over to iThrive and under her leadership, uh, we have been trying to take the latest neuroscience and the latest social psychology and use those discoveries in conjunction with game people game expertise and uh, the, you know, top academia in game studies, figure out how can we turn this stuff and this science into something that game developers can use, right? So we have two different sides of our organization. We have the, the researchers and the scientists who are doing the literature reviews, who are doing the research, who are collecting the data. That is not what I do. <laughs> I'm on the games side and what I do is help to translate it to game developers and develop resources that game developers can use. Um, what we've developed essentially is uh, game design guides that give you recipes for if you want empathy as a pro-social outcome of your game, here are the systems and features and qualities of your game that we believe according to science are gonna promote empathy as a player practice. But here also is a list of the things that if these are present in your game, it might take away from that. So what I do is I do game jams for universities and local game festivals. I do a lot of developer education at studios and universities and conferences all over the country. And uh, at the top tier level, we hold think tanks twice a year. Our fourth one is starting tomorrow at Vacation House in Anaheim. I fly a bunch of 
high, high level, you know, highfalutin game people out to our vacation house where we can all just kind of crunch on how do we take this science and translate it into game design? How do we do that? And so that once we can influence the game developers to develop games that way, then we can take the games that are developed, ship them over to research, have Yale University School of Medicine run efficacy testing on those games to decide what is working. You know, here are theories about what works and what doesn't work, but can we prove it? And that's what we're working on right now. Is there any games out that we can test now? Or Not try? yet. There were two that we did last year, and they are currently being studied by Yale. And we hope to be able to put those out. Um, however, the game jams that I do at universities, um, we will give them the design materials for empathy and say, now we want you to design a game that is about empathy. Here are the resources, here's the science, here are our design theories about that. And then they make a game about empathy. We just got done doing a game jam at DigiPen Institute of Technology in Seattle this past weekend. And the games that came out of that game jam were just really hard hitting and they really mattered and you felt something when you played these. And so we, we kind of feel like we're onto something and we're gonna be putting up, uh, we're gonna be putting up those prototypes on our website before too long so that people can see what came out of the game jam. And like every time I do a game jam, I'll be doing them at corporations, you know, Microsoft and Google have both said, hey, will you do a hackathon for us? I love doing hackathons, so anyone wants a hackathon, talk to me, I'll do one. <laughs> They're a lot of fun. But yeah, that's, that's kind of how we're proceeding with it. Perfect, thank you. My next question is for Matt and Mike. So I want to talk just a little bit about gamer motivation and reaching those people. So um, in general, can you tell us a little bit more about the, the research and methods that you do to utilize to, to study gamer motivation? Uh, is psychographics involved? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it goes beyond demographics. That sounds like so 20th century. But can we talk a little bit about um, that from your, your gentleman's perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the key things we're really focused on at Machinima, as I mentioned, is helping uh, brands reach that gamer audience. And uh, our feeling is that if you don't understand why the gamer plays the game he or she plays, you're not gonna be able to effectively translate that passion into their passion for a brand. And so we've done quite a bit of work to establish uh, what we call motivation segments. So reasons that people play video games. We boil it down to six fundamental reasons, which um, it's things like social, you play because you want a, you know, a social experience, you play because you want an action experience, achievement, mastery. I hope that we yeah. can talk more about that because we, we've been looking at the work done by Nick Yee and Quantic Foundry. That's who we work, that's what we've oh been working on. Well, there we hey. go. Hey. Fist bump common friends, yes, <laughs> all right. Yeah, so Quantic Foundry is exactly what we've jumped off from. Um, and, uh, you know, again, this is really important because, uh, to your point, nobody wants to do the ageist, sexist, uh, racist kind of media targeting anymore that's, you know, been the foundation of, of advertising. You, you want to move beyond that to something that's more effective, a little bit more woke. So. Mike? So if you talked to me about four months ago, we don't do any of this stuff. It's what we got, our gut, right? But as we've learned, and the reason why is that we're a startup. We started in four years ago. You know, a bunch of uh, guys from USC, the interactive, uh, home of um, Palmer Lucky, they just wanted to make games, man. At the end of the day, that's what they wanted to do. So again, as we started to grow and, and started to get some traction, 
segmentation analytics has grown, has become a bigger part of it to the point where when you're in VR, not just the regular hooks that you're probably used to seeing, right? But we're also, we also do eye tracking or we have the ability to do eye tracking. What are you looking at and everything? And that's gonna be an eventual game changer. But we understand analytics is an important part, but again, when we look at our, where our company is, we are not at machinima level, you know what I mean? So we are starting to, we understand the importance, but there is a lot of uh, effort and understanding. I don't have a mat at my company, you know, to be honest with you, if we had you, pop, pop, pop all the hooks and we know what to look for and everything, we're just not there yet. All right, so I have two more questions and we'll open up to Q&A. Um, what I want to touch on a little bit is, is, is the industry, what can the industry do to improve messaging to women and girls and marketing to women and girls? Can we talk about just a little bit about that for a little bit? Okay. Speaking so message, of racist, ageist, and sexist, come on. <laughs> I, would, I, I thought about this question a lot before I came here, and there it boils down for me, I think, to two points. First of all, stop assuming that pink and purple equals girl, okay? <laughs> there are some boys who really like pink and purple, too. They think it's fabulous. And I saw a really interesting comic strip uh, across my Facebook feed, and it was a man coming up to a woman and saying, you, you told me you really like Legos, right? She's like, yeah, I really like Legos. And he said, well, you know what? We at Lego made this especially for you. And he puts this thing down in front of her, and it is a pink and purple dream house with a juice bar in it. And she's just looking at this thing really, really puzzled. And she's like, okay, I appreciate that you did this for me because you probably did a lot of research to get there. And I don't even know why I would want a juice, box, a juice bar in my house or who would staff it if I'm the one drinking the juice. Um, but besides that, thank you. But all you really needed to do was to add one piece to all of the existing Lego sets. And that one piece is hair with a ponytail. So I would say forget about the pink and purple and start realizing that girls want to play with all of it. And how can you... How can you put an inclusive piece in there. The other thing is, think about how your marketing towards 18 to 34 year old men might be repelling women, right? Because the more sexualized you get, the more tawdry you get, the, the bigger the boobs on the booth babe at E3, the more women will look at that and, and think to themselves, oh, that game, that's, I'm not welcome there, that's not for me. Right. So those are just the two things that I would suggest. You guys want to weigh in on this? So at Servios, uh, which is a crazy stat, 70% uh, of our entire workforce are women. In my group, it's four out of, sorry, five out of 11. So just to put everything in perspective, we, we, we come to the table with, and I, and I tell, we, it's very important for women to be part of VR, and here's why. It's an infant industry. This is your chance as you know, a female, a minority, a, a young person, an old person, to make your mark. And we believe, we truly, truly believe that. I do not care about any of that other stuff, but if you wanna make your mark, it, you, it depends on the passion. So we promote, we've got a women in VR t-shirt, 
that the ladies all wear. Uh, we also have a transgender person at our company. We're fine with that. We, uh, we, 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 have a, uh, we have a Wiggy event. Here's a little plug. Uh, Wiggy event on October 3rd um, at our offices. So it's important for us to believe in this whole, not just gender focus, but people focused. And we really try to promote that. You know, it doesn't matter, you know, all those other barriers and everything. Um, but at the end of the day, if the data says one thing, and we've gotten, I've gotten in arguments with people where it's 90% male and 10% female, we're going, to, we're going to target males. I mean, that's just how the data runs. But the female that I was talking with was very passionate about this. And I go, I understand where you're coming from. Prove it to me that we should go after women in this campaign. Wonder Woman. It, it, that's right. But the point of the, the thing is that we had an advertising campaign. And, and it was 90 to 10%. And, and it just, that's the way the numbers go. Now, what she actually ended up saying to me is, let's change the messaging. Did it bring it up a little bit? 5%. So again, I'm talking ad dollars. This is where the money's coming down, right? Where are we gonna, how are we gonna do all this? But it, I'm It's okay kind of that. chicken and egg though, in a way, because if you are targeting men, that's who you're gonna get. And so it kind of self-perpetuates. Right, a way. but what we do over there is when we look at the data, we go through. I just care about that you are on the Vive, the Oculus, the PlayStation VR. You're into gaming, and that's our targeting. And let's see how the data plays out. The data played out 90 and 10. And don't get me wrong, I got double finger saluted when I was saying this is how the data plays out. And I said I will go down the path with you, but prove to me. The data, I get it, that's an emotional uh, event, but at the end of the day, how is the data gonna be proven? And that's what I care about. I do not care about, I get it that you're passionate about it, but show me the data. And that's, as I tell her and uh, my team, put the big boy pants on or the big girl pants on and let's, let's talk about data points. And that's all. Well, it's like I said earlier, trust your instincts, but check the data, right? Absolutely. Matt, you wanna weigh in or? You know, I'll just say that we've seen uh, organically 10% year-over-year growth in uh, women, uh, female viewership across our network, uh, and that's all happened organically. So I think that the shift is happening with or without our, our help, and we're certainly very supportive of it. We have uh, uh, gender-inclusive programming, um, in, you know, and it's a priority of the company. But, um, you know, I think to Mike's point, really the responsibility is try to find the best audience for your product, and if it's gender blind, then you're doing your job. Yeah. Ladies, did any of you cry at Wonder Woman? Anybody else? Yeah. I did a little. Okay, well, most of the women I know, most of my friends sobbed at Wonder Woman, right? And we had to have these really incredibly deep conversations about why were we crying? Oh my God, what did this movie do to us that we were all crying? And we, the more we talked about it and the more we processed, it was because of how it made us feel, right? It made us feel empowered. It made us feel kick-ass. It made us feel like we could speak up in a room full of men and be right, which, you know, doesn't always happen. <laughs> but if, if games can figure out a way to make women feel like we felt after we walked out of Wonder Woman, you're gonna make so much money. Yes, 
Yes. So I, I agree with you, but, but part of the thing also is, you know, how do you empower your employees to reach out to that? So we've got a game call, coming out called Sprint Vector. The product marketing manager is a female. So she's going to be running. This is how she's going to do it. Do, do I disagree with her? On data points, yes, but it's her show. Our, my, lead, my lead community manager is female. So again, those are those data points where, again, it's all about empowering, to your point, connecting that audience with the passion. Now, there are more of them out there. I agree with you completely, but again, it's also about they've got to be able to step up and go after that. So again, when we look at VR, we look at the way the data points are up playing, they need to also feel that they want to buy you know, the install base. So we actually have a female character. And when we're talking to partners, they also make it sure that there's a male and female. But again, a lot of that's gonna be driven by the perception by the, 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 the people who are running the show. So I believe in empowering them and how can I do to support them, which is end up my job is making, making shapes and moving them around on PowerPoint. Let's give it up for our panelists, it's great. All right, so we're gonna open it up to Q&A. Like I said, uh, I'd wait for the mic. Um, I will be distributing it, and uh, we'll leave one mic up here for answers, and uh, let's go. So who's got a question? Okay, gentlemen right here, I'll bring the mic. Hi there, so I've got a question for Matt, and you spoke about the, how you were working with YouTubers in Machinima and making sure that they got across to their you know, their markets and correct times of day and whatnot. And I was just curious about the current demonetization issues that have been plaguing YouTube as of the past couple weeks and how that has been affecting Machinima and your guys' role in working with content creators. Yeah, uh, great question. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, there's been a recent trend on uh, YouTube generally of lower revenues per thousand views uh, for many, many creators across the platform. And this was... Uh, we believe, uh, YouTube's issued no kind of formal response, but we believe this was in response to uh, complaints from advertisers about their content uh, appearing against inappropriate, um, inappropriate brands, right? So um, what we found is that there is a direct correlation between the number of profanity words that appear in a video's title or in its meta tags and the uh, number of ads that appear on those videos. So it seems like there's a very... Um, clear effort by YouTube to stop serving uh, advertiser content against inappropriate uh, videos. So those videos that don't have the, uh, the inappropriate words on their, on their materials uh, haven't seen uh, the demonetization that's, uh, that's been experienced by many. So we've gone out with a really long spreadsheet to our creator community saying try to avoid using these words on your videos, and that was a fun one to put together. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so far, so good. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Who's next? Question, question? Oh, come on, there's gotta be more questions. Yeah, Go ahead. Okay, hang on, guy. Hey, uh, Heidi, how can I get access to some of the research you guys are doing? Um, iThriveGames.org. Awesome, is it, do you sell that as a service or how do you guys work with people? 
We are still figuring that out. Um, I know that I have a certain amount of budget to do events with, and I'm a lot more willing to spend my budget at a university or a small games festival than I am a corporation who could be spending, who could be like supporting more of our events. So we are very open to talking to companies about that because we are fully funded until 2020, which is, is a pretty cool amount of runway and we're trying to make as much impact as we can uh, before that. But what we're hoping to have happen before then is to build a lot of sponsor relationships with people who, who care about this kind of thing. Awesome. So we can talk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hi, Heidi. Um, my name is Bryant. Um, a little backstory about myself. I, I'm the younger of two older sisters, and uh, they're 12, we're 12 years apart. And uh, you know, sometimes at Christmas we feel like complete strangers. But what's cool about me being able to connect with my sisters is playing video games. And uh, it's kind of hard finding something that we can all play together because uh, as we think with Mario Kart, for a guy, it's kind of kind of cheesy and a bit girly, but I try to, you know, I know my sisters love the story, and I love Metal Gear Solid. And the worst part was when we were playing Snake Eater. I don't know if you are familiar with Snake Eater. Well, there's a part where this um, there's a trainer who is like a mother figure to one of the soldiers, and she comes out to be like a traitor, and there's a big fight at the end, and all the roses are um, in the field are changing color because of this fight and the soldier is about to kill this mother figure. And my sister looked at me like, can you not shoot? Like, because it says you have to pull the trigger. So I was mortified because I didn't know what to do and I kept trying to figure it out. So I guess my question, the reason why I'm saying all this is because I, shooting it, having to press the R1 trigger and shoot the mother figure, it felt like every time I would try to connect with them on a video game, it just, the game titles were just all over the place. So I guess my question is, you, do you have know of a, maybe a handful of games that would be great for maybe brothers and sisters to play? Because I feel like being here in this audience, I'm really connecting to your message. Uh, I, if I ever have daughters, I would love to be able to sit down and play with them, with them, not have it feel like it's horribly generic to the female gender or having a juice bar or a dollhouse. <laughs> I would love to have something where we both male and female, if I ever have sons and daughters, they can both genuinely like a game and play it together. A lot of the ones that I know about seem to be single player, but I know that whenever I'm playing games with my son, I will often have him play and I'll sit there with him and watch him play. Um, I would say that a lot of interesting ones are in the indie space right now. Uh, there's one in particular called Undertale. Which, Undertale? Undertale. And it won a whole lot of awards last year. And one of the things that's really important about this game is that you're in this world, you don't know how you got there, and you talk to all these characters that you meet and every single one of them is grumpy. And you can either just kill them and move on, or you can find out where they're grumpy and you can help them and maybe they can help you. And there, you, know, you can play in any combination of ways, but there's one way that's called the pacifist path where you get all the way through the game without killing anyone. And then there's another path called the genocide path, where you go through and you kill everyone you meet. I would not recommend doing the pacifist followed by the genocide, <laughs> because it will scar you for life. But um, on our website, in our design resources, we have recommendations for games that we feel do this particularly well. I would say that a lot of them right now are in the indie space, because they don't have any specific 
requirements. They're just kind of making games from their heart. But I will say that there are some AAA games that offer really great examples of that. Many of them come from Bioware. Um, there have been moments in some of the Assassin's Creed games that, that just hit you right in the gut. And a lot of those games have multiplayer mode, so it's like maybe you play Assassin's Creed for a while and then you go into multiplayer mode and then you can all play, play together. I don't know. Well, the, the best game I found for me and my sister to play was called, uh, by Electronic Arts, called Spore Universe. Oh my god, yes. And to be able to create or nurture planets that you find. And then one day we tried playing it again months later and there was no more support for it and I couldn't even open the game. So that was the best. I could come to getting me. Yes, yeah, Spore. To play um, Spore is actually one of the games that we talk about in terms of uh, elevating curiosity, because you can change around the, these animals and see how they interact with each other. And like, oops, maybe that guy shouldn't have had a beak. I'm gonna give him teeth instead. <laughs> Last question. Yes, sir. Hey, Mike. This is Lasoya. Um, so my question to you is. Um, Right, you your biggest initiative is fueling growth for your um, for your company. So, are you guys? How are you guys fueling growth? Like, how are you guys getting reach and scale? Is it just working with your evangelists, like your inner circle of influencers that are passionate, or do you have to move outside of that and work? Basically, do you have to work with influencers that you may have to pay to kind of evangelize your message to their audience? Wow. So. <laughs> Um, so we have a very clear vision. We bring active VR to the masses, right? So that's HTC Vive, Oculus moving around. With that said, we've got a number of initiatives. The first point of the spear is um, arcades. There's a, there's a bunch of VR arcades out there. So we actually have a pipeline into them uh, with, both, with just content. So just to put everything in perspective, um, anybody got around $5,000 to just throw around and put into VR? That's how much it costs, right? So VR arcades is the first way we're gonna get into content. The second thing is products, right? We do a number of products, but we also have a lot of resources that we can throw at, um, not just to influencers, but also to other games. So the worst thing, and if you guys are all marketing people, the worst thing I can tell you is promote your competitors, right? That's like 101 you do not do. We do it all the time. So we actually use a lot of our channels to promote that. We have our Twitch stream. We've got a mixed reality area that we actually invite people. So it's all about trying to create that infant um, industry and growing it. And then the other thing also is how do we partner up with partners? They've got the dollar bills, right, at the end of the day versus our um, startup. How do we leverage those, right? Um, one of the things um, Matt and I were talking about earlier, again, I mentioned it, Machinima came to us to help build content. We just couldn't do it, right? But again, that's what I mean by when we say create evangelists. We have evangelists on so many different levels. We're not just talking about influencers. You know, we're talking about platform people. We're talking about technology partners. We're talking about a, a lots of different areas that you could ever expect that we can go, okay, let's make this phone call and how do we get aligned with them and to make, you know, to perpetuate our company. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bigger thing that we believe that it is our duty as a content creator to become an entertainment creator and 
you know, we've been very lucky uh, as a VC, uh, as funding. So we've gotten funding from um, some big partners to do this. But that's our cross to bear. That's excellent. Let's give it up for our panel. It was great. You've been listening to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. For more information on the American Marketing Association's Los Angeles chapter and to find out about upcoming events, follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. This podcast was produced by Joel Metzger and Icebox Logic.